You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's Word today. To open up my message, I just wanted to read this prayer that was uttered by George Washington as a prayer for the nation. He said, Almighty God, we make our earnest prayer that you will keep the United States in your holy protection, that you incline hearts of its citizens to cultivate a spirit a subordination and obedience to government, to entertain brotherly affection and love for one another and their fellow citizens of the United States at large. And finally, that you will most graciously be pleased to dispose us to do all justice, to love mercy, to demean ourselves with that charity, humility, and pacific temper of mind which we were the characterizations of the divine author of our blessed religion, without a humble imitation of whose example in these things, we can never hope to be a happy nation. Grant our supplication, we beseech thee, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. The words of our first president. So if anyone tells you, you know, uh, this is not a Christian nation, They need to do a little history lesson. So we're in Colossians, and we've been talking about the church in crisis. Not this church, uh, but the church in Colossae was going through some trouble and some difficulties. And uh, it was a church that was started by just everyday people like you and I. It wasn't planted by one of the apostles or the disciples. It was just people who heard the gospel, took it back to their city, and started sharing with others, and they started meeting together. And it was faced with a crisis because it didn't have an apostle overseeing it or a pastor to care for it. So being led by lay people, um, there were those who took advantage of that. And there were false teachers and false apostles that came in and started teaching things that were contrary to the gospel, contrary to the things that had been preached by the disciples. These uh, false teachers were called Gnostics. And they were people that uh, actually the book of 1 John deals with quite a bit. People who said, you know, if you have the mystery religion, if you have the divine knowledge and revelation that we have, then you will truly be close to God. But if you don't, then you are on a lower tier than us. And so Epaphras, a teacher within the Colossian church, came to uh, Paul in his imprisonment in Rome and said, we need your help. Can you help us? Can you give us something to be able to combat the uh, deceitful and lying philosophies that these teachers were bringing? And so Paul writes a letter to the Colossian church, and he combats the uh, teaching of these false teachers by, as we talked about last week, focusing on two things. The first is the sufficiency of Christ, that he is enough for salvation and for all things. Amen. And the supremacy of Christ being in rulership and being over every principality, power, and dominion, both that is on the earth, that is under the earth, and above the earth. So Christ's sufficiency and his supremacy. And so he lets uh, the church know through that that Christ is all they really need. But one of the problems in Colossae were that these false teachers were just so very persuasive. And how many know persuasive people? People that are just incredibly good at convincing you of things, even if already in your mind you said, I am not doing that. 
could be a buddy of yours that says, let's go do that. And you're like, that sounds dangerous, illegal, or otherwise. And they're like, oh, no, it's fine. And they convince you to do something that you probably shouldn't have done. Or maybe you know people that are salespeople, and they could sell ice to polar bears in Antarctica. They're just that good at convincing people they need something that they don't really need. Or maybe you have uh, people that you know that uh, are so articulate when it comes to arguments and debates that you're like, you know what, they make a good point, and you're almost convinced to believe what they believe because they can just do it in such a persuasive way. Or in a negative sense, maybe you know somebody that's uh, kind of a pathological liar. And even though that they are a person that have lied time and time again, They are so convincingly sincere and emotional and all of those things that you kind of are inclined to believe that they might be telling the truth this time only to find out it's the same old story and the same cycle of deception that's happened time and time again. Paul, in chapter 2 of Colossians, if you'll turn there with me, builds upon the foundation he began in chapter 1. Now, I want you to know, too, the first thing that you'll notice in the first verse there is that it just kind of launches right into it. And this is one of those examples that as the Bible was being put into print production, these chapter and verses weren't part of the original manuscripts. They were added by the publisher for the sake of clarity and for the sake of being able to, to find your place in the Word. So there are many portions in the Scripture where it just kind of launches into or completes or continues a thought from the previous uh, chapter because it was just one long letter. And so Paul says in this, verse 1, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and for those in Laodicea. For as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, in their hearts they may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attain to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, of both the Father and of Christ, in whom all are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You can underline that. In him is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul begins by affirming that they have attained the fullness of the knowledge of knowing who God is through Jesus. So the Colossian church, people are really worried, do I know God? Do I know God like these super apostles, these teachers, these Gnostics, they're so persuasive. I almost feel like I don't really know God. And Paul's saying, you know God because you know Jesus, because Jesus is the fullness of God. And he said, remember, these teachers in Colossae told the church that without this secret knowledge, without this mystery of religion, no one could truly be close to God. But Paul says that we have received all those things through Christ, in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells. And he commands them in faith, and he gives them a warning, a warning found in verse 4. He says, Now I say this, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. My goodness, there are people with persuasive words. There are wordsmiths out there. There are people who can present themselves in such a way, even Christians, well-meaning Christians who may have their doctrine off, might be drifting into heresy, but yet they do it so either so convincingly or so sincerely that you're like, I almost believe what they have to say. 
Verse 5. For though I am absent with you, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Jesus. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus as Lord, walk in him, rooted and built up and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Verse 8, now underline this, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So I want you to notice some things here. Is that, uh, you know, he says, I'm not with you in body, but I'm with you in spirit. And if you've received the Lord, walk in him. If you can't do anything else, walk in the assurance and understanding that you belong to Jesus and he is yours and you are his. And so you've been done in that. And so uh, he commends them for their persistent and steadfast faith. And he warns them against people that would try and cheat them out of the goodness of what they have in Christ. You ever been cheated? It's not fun. Maybe you play a board game and someone cheats. You're like, how do they always win every single time? And that person's just stinking cheating every single time and you don't find out till later. Or, you know, you watch sports and you simply think that everything in sports is on the up and up. And then you, you know, hear about the stories in baseball that, you know, people are adding, you know, sticky tack to their baseballs to make them go faster. People are taking steroids or people are just cheating by watching the game plans of other people and, and winning that way. And you're like, how can they be so good for so long? And then you find out later that they cheat. And even some of the the champions, you know, Olympic champions and Tour de France champions who, you know, garnered respect and accolades and people going to them and then realizing later that they were a fraud. They were cheating the whole time. And there's something about that where you feel like you've missed out on something. You feel dirty. You feel betrayed. And Paul is saying, watch out for these teachers with their persuasive words Because in reality, if you listen to what they're saying, they're actually cheating you out of the fullness that you have in Christ. And so there are a few things here that we need to be careful of. And you can write these things down. These are uh, four things that Paul says to be on guard against so that you aren't cheated out of the fullness that you have in Jesus. That everything that you need is in Christ. Everything that you hope to have is in him. But if you go down these roads, you'll start looking to something else, someone else, for your uh, validation, for your acceptance in God, and you really don't need these things. The first thing is this. He says philosophies. Watch out for the philosophies of this world. In other translations, it says godless philosophies. The second thing is empty deceit, things that are said with a degree of truth and trying to convince you that they're truth, but they're really just empty promises and there's nothing behind them. Third, the traditions of men, you know, going into legalism and rituals to achieve uh, the supposed fullness and acceptance of God, not recognizing and realizing that you've already been accepted and made holy in Jesus Christ. 
that you don't need to do those things in order to be accepted by God. You are already accepted by God. Fourthly, the principles of this world. Guiding your life and your decisions according to worldly principles instead of a biblical worldview and a scriptural understanding of what I should do. A perfect example of this would be like what you'd, you know, if you feel threatened by someone, taking it into your own hands and doing harm instead of following what the Word says. If you're brought into a situation where your integrity is being tested, whether it be an opportunity that might uh, go against God's Word and God's ways, even though it might be legal and acceptable in the world's eyes, it's not acceptable in God's eyes. And so if you're guiding your life and decision-making by worldly principles, you are deviating from what Christ has for you and has given to you. Does that make sense? Now what is, let's talk about the first one. What is philosophy? Now philosophy in and of itself is not evil. Philosophy was something that was common in Paul's time, uh, during the time of the Greek philosophers. And basically what a philosopher does is that they ask questions and they question things. Most of the time they're questioning the pre-established norm. Why is it this way? Why do we do this this way? And there's nothing wrong with asking questions to learn. In fact, the word philosophy is philosophia, which means a lover of wisdom or knowledge. So philosophy in and of itself is not wrong, but godless philosophy, worldly philosophy, runs contrary and against the principles that God has established for us and the fullness that he wants us to have in Christ. Philosophy is also a system of thoughts and beliefs that you have that shape the way a person thinks or acts. I'll say that again. Philosophy is a system of thinking and belief that shape the way that you think and act. So whatever is at the core of your thinking is at the core of your decision-making and the actions that you do. So if we have at its root not godly principles, but worldly principles, or worse, godless-based philosophies, then we'll find ourselves not only in conflict with what God wants for us, not only in conflict for what Christ has told us, but actually deviating off the given path that God has for us. Paul warned against fine-sounding arguments and godless philosophies in the church. Christians should be on guard against ideologies that do not have their root in the Lord. A good rule of thumb is just because it sounds good doesn't mean that it is good. Am I right? If you've ever been sold something by a salesman and you're like, it sounded really good until you called customer service. And then you realize they weren't backing that at all. Or you realize a month in it broke already. It sounded good, but it was broken. And a lot of the philosophies of this world are broken people with broken ideas, trying to fix broken things. But the only one that can truly fix us and fix this world is Jesus. And so let's examine a few of them, okay? So there's many convincing arguments. In fact, you might even hear them. He said, you know, that sounds pretty good, on paper, but as you look at it, you realize that its beginnings and its roots uh, do not have God as its center. 
I'll give you an example. Socialism is one of them. Socialism sounds good on paper. This is not a political debate. Trust me when I say this. But socialism is defined by Merriam-Webster as various economic and political theories advocating collective or government ownership and administration of the means of production and distribution of goods. A system of society or group living where there's no private property and all things are shared together for the common good. Oh, the common good, that sounds good, right? We share all things in common. That sounds like a biblical principle, right? Until you recognize where it came from. You know, it's been labeled as the cure for the problems in our country. But the problem is it was founded by a man who declared that religion was a system of control by the wealthy to control the poor. By a man who didn't believe that man even possessed a soul and taught that God was a delusion that was used to keep people down. He's quoted as saying, religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless condition. It is the opium, the cocaine, the drug of the masses. He was even quoted as saying, my object in life is to dethrone God and abolish capitalism. Karl Marx, German philosopher. He wasn't Russian, by the way. He was German in his writing, The Communist Manifesto. The problem with this philosophy is that it's based on the wholesale destruction of faith and religion. It is a perfect example of a godless philosophy. Though it intends to do good, its roots are bad. So it's kind of like growing a tree. And you think, well, an apple tree is good. Until you realize it's a crab apple tree. And though, even though it flowers and it blossoms and even produces little apples. We've got a couple out front in front of our church, and we're like, oh, an apple. Until you go to eat that apple, and you're like, this is not an apple. This is sour garbage that someone pretended was an apple. (laughs) But it flowers, and it looks pretty on the outside, but at its heart, it's something different. So a tree by its roots can't be anything different than what it grows to be. If it starts as a sapling, it grows into those things. Another one is humanism. Humanism says that we are the answer to the world's problems. We can fix the world we live in by coming up with our own answers. And we don't need anything as long as we work together. Now, that sounds good. We can do anything as long as we work together. And it's, but it's a philosophy that is based on human interests and helping the needs of people. And it does good. Humanitarian aid, uh, humanitarianism is the root of humanism. It comes out of this philosophy Humanitarian aid and organizations have their beginning in this philosophy. And admittedly, much good has come out of this. Hungry are fed, the poor are clothed, and the less fortunate are helped. And those are things that we as the church should always endeavor to do. But the problem with secular humanism is that the philosophy that man does not need God to solve their problems, but rather we can solve our own problems by our logic, by our rationalization, by our intelligence, by our intellect, we can solve the problems of this world. But time and time again, man has proven that he can't solve all the problems of the world. If that were the case, wouldn't all the world's problems be solved in the 2,000 years that we've had or the 200 years that we've been in this country? Don't you think by now we would have figured it out? Don't you think that by, tonight, by now we would have gotten over like all the problems of greed and poverty 
and selfishness and, and, and violence and all the other things that go on in the world that we see, but we haven't solved it yet because we are just broken people trying to fix broken things with a broken perspective. Man eventually reaches the limit of what he can do and the motivation for why he does it. The problem is not what humanism does, but what it looks to. Secular humanism is a philosophy of life that embraces human reason, secular ethics, and philosophical naturalism while specifically rejecting religious dogma, supernaturalism, and superstition as the basis for morality and decision-making. Secular humanism posits that human beings are capable of being ethical and moral without religion, without God. In other words, we don't need religion. We don't need faith. We don't need God to be moral and to do good without any of those things. But the truth of the matter is, if we look at the world that we're in, if we have no governing standard, if everybody does what's right in their own mind and heart, we have this very diverse, different uh, perspectives on what's good and what's not good. And it's about, well, what does the majority think? And is everybody in favor of this? So at its roots, what we're seeing here is that man can govern himself and do good and figure things out without God. But the truth is, we haven't been able to do that. And what we see is we see a world that's more confused. We see people that are more uh, disoriented, that people are doing what's right in their own eyes. And so this sort of perspective is not the best perspective. A better perspective is a biblical one where the scriptures tell us that we should care for the poor and the needy and represent the oppressed and take care of each other. But if we're approaching it from a a godless, worldly philosophy, then its roots are wrong because we can do that without God. But if we approach it from a biblical perspective, a biblical worldview, we're saying God has told us that we are children made in the image of God and that we should care for and love one another, then that's born out of a different set of principles and a different set of ideals. And conversely, it's at its core, it's truly altruistic. It doesn't have any desire for itself. It's done for the benefit of others and for the honor of God. The other one is pluralism. Now, pluralism, you might have even heard this before, all paths lead to heaven. As long as you live a good life, that's enough. And they say that all religions basically teach the same thing. Be a good person, and that's enough. God understands. That sounds good. It sounds soothing, even convincing, but it's actually not true. Man by nature does not have the capability to be completely good. We don't. The scriptures tell us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And if we're truly honest with ourselves, we know that we have done more bad than good in life. And so people will say, well, okay, you know, well, man is good, so we don't, you know, we don't need religion, and, and, you know, whatever religion you want to believe in, that's fine. It's all sort of the same thing. They're all saying the same thing. It, it might even be the same God that just represents himself in different ways to different groups of people. And if you don't know anybody, you say, oh, that sounds convincing. That sounds right. You know, if I'm a good person, then I'll go to heaven. Even before you were a Christian, you might even thought to yourself, you know, if I'm just a good person, I'll go to heaven. But we, this philosophy misses out on two big problems. One, if man was good enough by his works, then Christ died on the cross in vain. 
If man's good enough on his own, then Jesus didn't need to come. He didn't need to die on the cross. He didn't need to be offered for our sins and salvation. He didn't just die for the bad people. He died for all people. So God the Father saw that it was necessary enough to send Jesus into the world to die for us. So if we're saying we're good and we can do good things and it doesn't matter to God, then what we're doing is we are forgetting the cross. That's a dangerous thing to forget the cross. Secondly, Christianity does not claim to be one of many ways. Jesus didn't say, you know, there are other prophets out there and other teachers. You can listen to them. But Jesus got into trouble because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by me. By virtue of his statements, he's saying, everybody else is not the right way to heaven. I'm the only way to heaven. And that's what the world has a problem with today. They have a problem with the fact, like, well, how can he say he's the only way? You want to test this? Talk to anybody about God. They're fine with it. But talk about the exclusiveness of Jesus, they'll get mad at you. They'll talk about God all day long, whatever God means to them. But if you want to talk about Jesus, you know, how can you be a a Christian? All Christians are bigots and racists and hate people. How can you be a Christian and think that there's only one way to heaven? And you'll get into trouble that way. And that's why God Jesus into trouble too. So if you understand that pluralism you know, it basically says everything works and we're all good. The cross is the antithesis of that. It stands against it. It is exhibit A in the case against us. If we weren't sinful, then we wouldn't need the cross. Because the cross is there, we are by nature sinful. The cross is center to everything that Paul is talking about. Paul says, for in Christ the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily dwells bodily. Remember, they, the, the Gnostics were saying, Jesus didn't really actually come in the flesh. It was a vision. It was an apparition seen by some. It was an illusion, but he didn't come in the flesh. You know what that does? That undoes the work of the cross, and it keeps people away from the cross, like this philosophy does. Well, you don't need the cross to come to God. You don't need what Jesus did in order to go to heaven because you're just a good enough person. God will just love you as you are because you're not as bad as somebody else. We talked about it on Wednesday night in our study of Ephesians, which kind of deals with a similar theme because people, by nature, we say we're good comparatively to someone that's worse than us. We pick our neighbor who's a bit of a train wreck, or we pick our family member who's a liar and a cheat, or we pick like the person that's in prison and we go, I'm not that, hey, I'm not that person. And that's easy because we always look better than that person all day, every day. So we look pretty good compared to that person. But then that's not the standard we need to compare it to. If we compare ourselves to Jesus and say, okay, Jesus is the standard, and you've got to be like Jesus in order to get to heaven, then you're saying, I'm not as good as I thought I was. So the cross is central to it. Take away the cross and you remove everything that we have in Christ. To deny the deity of Jesus removes the power of the cross and the very foundation of our salvation. The Colossian church is encouraged, don't abandon the cross. Don't abandon all the benefits it provides. They were in danger of being cheated out of all that the cross had given them. Now let's look at what the cross provided us with. Verses 9 through 15. You still with me today? He's talking philosophy, so I don't know if I can pay attention. Stay with me, okay? I know this is somewhat academic, more so than I'm used to and more so than you normally hear from me, but stay with me on this. 
Look at verses 9 through 15. For in Jesus, in him, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. Underline that. You are complete in him. Who is the head of all principality and power. In him you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism so you were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 13, and you being dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that were against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way and having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So think of it this way. If we abandon the cross, then we are truly cheated out of the benefits that we have in Christ. Here are the things that we have in the cross. You can write these down. Number one, we are made complete in him. The Gnostic teachers that infiltrated the church uh, told the believers that they were incomplete without this knowledge and revelation that only they had. But Paul is saying that if you accepted Christ and you have the teachings of the apostles and the disciples, then you lack nothing. You are made complete in him. Brother and sister in Christ, can I just encourage you today, you have everything that you need in Jesus. You are made complete in him. You may be not perfect, but you are made holy in Christ. Christ makes up the difference. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like we're here and Christ fills the space in between. Where we lack in our righteousness, he fills the difference. Where we lack in our ability, Christ enables us. Where we lack in power and human wisdom to be able to heal, to transform, and to save, he fills up the space in between. Do we understand what I'm talking about today? He fills up all the space in between. In him we are made complete. In him we are filled fully with the fullness of God. We're not lacking anything or missing anything. You are not deficient in God. You are not less than in Christ. I want you to understand that today because we sometimes think that we are second-class citizens in the economy of heaven. But I want you to know today that in Christ, we are accepted, we are loved, we have everything that we need in him, and we're only just scratching the surface of what he truly has for us. We're only just beginning to just... You know, <laughs> funny analogy, okay. Ever go to one of those ice cream places in the summer, okay, and you stand in front of the, the, the uh, little display of all the ice creams they have, right? Amen. Yeah, amen. <laughs> Revival's gonna break out any minute here. And they have these, these wonderful just tubs of different kind of flavors in there, and there's flavors that you haven't tried before, and so you're like, well, I, I kind of want to try it before I buy it. And so what do they give you? They give you that little wooden spoon, and they dip it in there. It's got this like little thimble of ice cream in there for you to taste and to try out for your own so that you can try it before you buy it. And, and it goes in and just gives you that little bit. And meanwhile, there's this huge tub of ice cream. And once you get it, you're like, I'll just take the tub. Just give that, I'll just bring that my way. Or you get like two or three scoops at the ice cream place. Can I just challenge you with this thought there that 
you know, so, much, so often we as believers are taking that little spoon and just touching the very beginnings and the surface of all that God has for us in the fullness of Christ, not realizing that there's just this limitless and bottomless well that we can draw from in the Spirit, in His goodness, in His forgiveness, in His love. I want you to know, brother and sister in Christ, friend, person in this church, church member, I want you to know today, today that everything that you need is in the limitless uh, deposit and limitless well that is Jesus and his spirit today. Amen. You are made complete in him. Amen. Secondly, the sins of the flesh are cut off of us. Now, circumcision was a sign of the old covenant, and it was a, a physical representation in which you would be able to tell God's people, the Jews, from the Gentile. But Jesus is saying, Paul is saying that in Christ we have a new circumcision, a new covenant, a new way of determining that we are God's people. People that weren't God's people, people that were Gentiles, that weren't descendants of Abraham, that weren't part of the Jewish uh, nation and the Jewish people. But he said, now covenantally in Christ, there is the beginning of a new covenant in the cross by which the sins of our flesh is not physically cut away, but rather it's removed spiritually when we come to him in faith. When we come to him and ask for forgiveness, we're forgiven. When we come to him and accept Jesus as Lord and we accept the atoning sacrifice that he's done for us, that which was part of us has been cut off and cut away. And so those things that used to define who you were before being a Christian, your lusts, your desires, your sins, your hang-ups, your habits, those things that used to be part of who you are are now cut away and cut off of you in Christ and that we can live a righteous life because he has cut those things away. And now we have a new covenant. Uh, Not the old covenant with its rules and regulations, but a new covenant in him which we're walking with him and he is walking with us and we have fellowship with him and we are part of God's people. The third thing is we have resurrection and new life in him in baptism. We see another sign of the new covenant in Christ, the baptism in water. Romans 6, 4 says, we were buried with him through baptism into death Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. There is no more vivid example of the death and resurrection of Christ than baptism in water. It is a physical representation of what Jesus did. Jesus died, went down into the ground, and was raised up once more. That's the picture. For us as believers, we are to recognize that we, when we decided to accept Christ as Savior, we have left the old life behind. We have died to our sins, and we've been raised to new life in Christ. Baptism, why I encourage you to do it if you've never done it, you should do it. It's a a wonderful uh, opportunity to see what Jesus has done in your life. It's an opportunity for a physical illustration of what God's done in your life. But it's also a declaration of your faith in him. And people will rejoice with you that you're walking in this new life. You are made an outward, physical decision to follow Jesus. It's no longer like, I think he's a Christian. I think she's a Christian, but I'm not sure. It's like, if they got baptized, they're a Christian. Because nobody just wants to go get dunked in water on a Sunday morning unless they're really serious about this thing. So I encourage you in that. And so we have in this that we've been uh, dead to sin, brought to newness of life. He says, if you've been brought alive, now walk in newness of life. 
It's kind of like if you have been cancer-free and you walk out of the hospital and the doctor declared you cancer-free and they said, okay, you'll do good as long as you walk in these things and don't go back to the smoking, don't go back to the other things, be careful about what you eat, choose what you want to do here and, and be mindful of those decisions. And then you go, ah, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. Who cares? And you fall back into that. It's the same way. We've been delivered from sin death and the grave and from hell itself and we've been raised up to newness of life he says walk worthy walk and follow christ's ways and his plan for us and live that way number four all of our debts of the law have been canceled because of the cross we've been forgiven now the old covenant that we talked about the law laid out all the different kinds of sins that man could be guilty of and each time man violated God's righteous laws, another bill of sale was sent your way. Oh, they lied? That's gonna be this much. Oh, they cheated? That's gonna be this much. They committed adultery? It's gonna be this much. And different things. And so each time you commit an infraction against the old covenant, it's like another bill shows up across your, your doorstep, shows up in your mailbox. You're like, Pastor, how do you know that that's what's going on in my life right now? Right? You might be getting bills galore. And there's nothing more discouraging and frustrating than a bill, especially if it's too big for you to pay. And according to the old covenant, like our sins were too many. We had too many past dues. We had too many, uh, so many, so that the collection notices were going to be uh, called on us. And the collection for it is our soul. The only thing we pay for it is with our soul in eternity. And that's when Christ came along. And I want you to imagine, if you will, a desk piled with all kinds of bills. And maybe your desk is piled with bills at home that you can't pay and you don't have the ability to pay. And they're just piled up and stacked up. And they've got that little red thing, final notice, you know, payment due, you know, sending you to collections and different things. And just a pile of things. And what Christ does, the picture here, is he takes every single one of those things that had to do with your sin and the debt that you owed to God in that and he takes it and he nails it to the cross. Every single one, he puts it up against the cross and nails it because when he died, that's exactly what he did. And the, it's stamped with a new stamp. It doesn't say past due. It doesn't say coming due. It's stamped paid in full by his blood. And everything is now on that cross. And so now the desk is clear. Your, your account is rendered to zero. You are fully over. You know, all the things that you were owing were completely canceled out. You are debt-free in Christ. That's the fullness we have in the cross. So if we take this and remove it, we are still under collections, so to speak, if that makes sense. It might not. It's not in the notes, so it might not make sense at all. But you understand what I'm saying is that we were due for collections for our very soul was the payment for the sins of this world, but Christ took it on his body himself and he nailed every single one that you owed to the cross. And they're paid. They're no longer due. It's been paid for. It's been settled. You are out of collections. And now you are standing in good grace. The last one. Triumph over every spirit over us. Some of you are going to like this one here. Because it says that having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them. Paul uses a picture from Roman victory parades. Whenever the Roman Empire, which is one of the, the, the most powerful empires of the ancient world at that time, whenever the Romans would go into battle, 
And whenever they would come back victoriously, what they would do with the opposing army that opposed them, what they would do is they would take their weapons, they would take their armor, they would take their shields, they would strip them naked and chain them all together next to each other. And it would lead them on a procession through the center of the city. And so that they would be humiliated, defeated, humiliated, and powerless. And this is the picture that Paul uses to say, this is what Jesus did on the cross. Taking captive every principality, every power, every spirit. Remember that the book, in the book of Colossians, the Colossian church was, was all situated and fi- fixed with, uh, well, which angel do we need to worship to get you know, the favor of God? Which evil spirit do we need to appease or to fight against in order to f- receive victory? And Paul's saying, listen, you don't need to fight that battle because in the cross, Jesus has stripped and taken away the, the weapons, the armor, and the methods of the enemy. He has depanced them, chained them up, and paraded them through town. In other words, that which you think is powerful over you and over your family and over your situation has been rendered impotent in Christ. Does that make sense? I want you to get a hold of this today is that he has made a spectacle of them riding triumphantly on a white horse with these pathetic wretches behind them and saying, okay, they're powerless unless you choose to give them power. They're powerless unless you choose to assign and believe that, they, that that's your portion. Whether it's part of, this is part of my family and I accept that and I believe that. This will be my destiny in life and death. I will never get out of debt. Whatever the case might be, if you choose to empower that and believe that, then you are rearming those principalities and powers. They have been disarmed in Christ. With these parts, with these points, Paul picks apart the Gnostic teachers and their false teaching, reaffirming that Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. If you were to even read like further onward, you would read uh, verses 16 through 19. He says, these people are delusional. These people that are teaching you, they, 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 they tell you things that they've made up in their minds. Visions and dreams and delusional thoughts that they made up in their own. Uh, that they don't even know. They, they, they've lost their connection to God the Father. They've lost their connection to the head, Jesus Christ, and they're just kind of floating out there on their own. And so the question we got to ask ourselves is like when it comes to the cross, like these things are trying to cheat you and take you away from the cross. Colossians, don't listen to these teachers. They're trying to tell you you don't need Jesus and you don't need the cross. But if you do that, you're being cheated out of all these wonderful things that you have in Christ. The question you should ask yourself is if you have everything you need in Christ, why would you go back to anything else? Verses 20 through 23, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of this world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to its regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle all which concern uh, the things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are no value against the indulgences of the flesh. Fine-sounding arguments and godless philosophies of this world might seem convincing. But they are secular philosophies that sound good but are empty. They're based on man's understanding and intellect. 
The deception is that people think that these things can save them. Things that are based on the traditions of men, man's religion, self-righteousness, uh, you know, legalism, all the things of this world, but they can't save. People following the principle of this world trying to change the world. Remember, broken people with broken ideas trying to fix broken things. It's like if you've ever had tried to fix a car with pieces that weren't quite fully together, you know that you can't make that go. And if you do make it go, it'll only go for so long before it breaks again. That's the way the world is. Let's fix it our way, not realizing that God has the ability to not only fix it, but to make it new, to completely change it and transform it into something else. These things are shadows, empty copies of the one thing that can actually change the world, and that's Jesus. Only that which is heavenly can save that which is earthly. Only that which is heavenly can save that which is earthly. The foundational principles are in Christ. He created all things and he put all things in his place. It's foolishness to go to the created world instead of the creator to fix what is broken. Christian, you're not to be influenced by these things or make your decisions based on them. And in some ways, we have kind of a, if you're not careful, you'll have like the Colossian church, a mixture of a lot of different things, a lot of different philosophies and ideals, some of which are spiritual, but some of which are worldly. And you'll kind of mix them together, and it'll become this kind of like awful concoction by which you hope to live by and serve by. You'll end up more confused and do more harm than good. But if you get back to biblical principles, if you get back to the Word of God and walking in the Word of God, if you are filtering everything through the Word of God, every decision you make, every emotion that, you, that rises up within you, if it's anger, if it's jealousy, whatever, and you filter that through the Word of God, it will help you to do what's right and to do what is godly in His sight. Church, refuse to be cheated by the deceptive practices of this world. Choose not to be cheated, but to keep your eyes on Jesus. Remember that he is the one that fixes the broken. Remember that he is the one that has put us back together. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come back up as we prepare our hearts for communion at the end of service. But I want you to think about that today, is that we were once broken. We were once without hope. But now, because of the cross, we have salvation. We have a hope. We have someone that we can look to that can help us. And don't let anyone or anything tell you otherwise. Maybe this morning, as I'm talking to you today, you could say, you know what? I always knew that God loved me. And I kind of knew that, you know, Christianity was probably true. But you never knew that, like, he was the way and the solution to so many of the things in this world. That all the fullness of everything we hope to have in God is in him and in the cross. This morning, today, we can put our trust and our hope in him. Maybe we can just take a moment of reflection right now before the Lord. If we can just close our eyes. I just want to encourage you in this, that today if if you're not sure about your eternal destiny, if, if you're not sure that God loves you, if you've never made that commitment to him, I want to challenge you today to pray the prayer and say, God, I trust you. I believe in you. I know that everything I have and need is in Jesus. And today, I put my faith and trust in him. 
I want to encourage you today to let God speak to your heart, to change your life, that you would give your heart and your life to Jesus and walk not according to these ways, the ways of this world, even the ways that you were brought up in. Maybe the things that your mother, your father taught you that are good things, but they're not godly principles. To live differently, to live biblically, to live like a Christian should. I encourage you today to make that decision to follow him. And maybe if you're already there, if you're already like, well, I'm already a Christian, that you would never sacrifice or cheat or give up what you have in Christ for something else that sounds convincing and sounds too good to be true. You'll find every single time it's empty. It promises healing. It promises health. It promises restoration. It promises better but you'll find more often than not it's just empty promises. Put your hope in Christ. Heavenly Father, we just thank you today that you are all that we need. Thank you for sending Jesus to us today. Thank you for his death on the cross. Thank you that, Lord God, we are made complete in him. And I pray for every person in this place. I pray for the believer that thinks there's nothing in God's sight. Help them to be filled with the love of God in their heart. Help them to know that they are dearly loved by God and made complete in Him. Lord, that you make up the difference. You fill up the empty spaces and the deficiencies that we have. In you, we find hope. In you, we find salvation. In you, we find the power for right living. I pray today that you'd help each person to realize they're made complete in Him and they lack no good thing through your Spirit. So, Lord, we just pray that you'd work in our hearts and lives. Lord, draw those to yourself that need to know you today. May they finally bow a knee and choose to follow after you. Lord God, bring them to salvation. Lord God, bring them to, Lord God, the only direction that really matters and it's yours. Lord, I just pray you'd set us free from the, the things of this world that are trying to tell us it's better than your way. Instead, help us to walk and serve you fully. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us Sunday mornings to worship with us. We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.